Right on, righty boy. It's last episode of the year. What a year, boys! But from me to you two, thanks for bloody everything, mate. Thank, thank you. It's thanks been a for ripper. saving me ass. Uh, <laughs> we're, going, we're going out on a high note. We've got a great interview in store, don't we, mate? Couple, couple of blokes. We've got a lot of respect for for the articles they write, the potty as well. And we're gonna. It was a and it was a theme from the start. Peter Kerr and Anthony McDonald from the AFR. Yeah. Um, but for those wondering, Peter Kerr writes the the metals and mining. He covers the resources yep. part of the world. And Anthony, he was for over a decade street talk, and now he is one of the one of two Chanticleer writers. Yeah, he's on the Chanticleer potty, uh, and. He wrote a great article about IGO the other day covering the whole um, lithium selling issue there. So, yeah, no, we've got a lot of respect for these guys and we're absolutely um, flattered they come on. We've, to, for we've a body. them on awesome. to, to chat about um, like the year in review, right? Let's just look back at 2023. What can we talk about? The big themes, the big deals, like, and what does it mean for this year? But importantly, what does it mean looking ahead as well? These guys have pretty good insight because they – they write about this. I got good access to information. Being, um, you know, journalists at um, a, a credentialed uh, media organisation, mate. Unlike mm. money of mine, we're still their, their contact list must almost be as big as yours, Maddie. <laughs> oh, mate, wouldn't mind tapping, wouldn't mind chucking that on the hard drive. It's cool for us to reflect back as well, right? Because um, 2023 has been a big year for us. In, in fact, having these two guys come on our podcast for our last episode of the year, it's a little bit of a throwback to our first episode of the year yeah. in some ways. Oh, let me guess. I reckon you're going to play it for us, Trav. I am. I want to play a snippet from our very first episode uh, this year because um, Anthony McDonald features on it. Not, he, well, he didn't come on, but we played a snippet <laughs> of his. JD, something caught your attention the other day from uh, our East East Coast friends. Matt. That's right. So <laughs> Liontown making headlines. I think everyone in the mining sector has seen the news. So they came out and told the market that they'd – rejected not just one but three bids over the past half year we were listening into the the chanticleer podcast down at the afr and i think they best captured it in in the (laughs) snippets you're about to hear oh yeah i was just about to say i've conveniently uh compiled a couple of snippets from playing a snippet of uh, the chanticleer podcast here we go Whenever anything rises like that, there's always naturally going to be a fair bit of scepticism. The scepticism is particularly in the institutional investor market. This thing's come out of Perth. Um, On the East Coast, the the big brokers and the investors in Sydney and Melbourne can be wary sometimes of things that come out of Perth. There can be a bit of hot air around it. You know, they're diggers and dealers, right? That's That's the mining sector. These guys have either got lucky or knew something that everyone else didn't, but they're onto a good thing. The, the personalities versus the the East Coast skeptic. There we go, lads. What do you reckon about that? How do you feel? Personalities. That's a new one for me. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> I've never heard it before. It sounds like there's a good opportunity for a, a, a thoughtful West Coast based media organisation to pop up and fill a bit of a gap there. Do's Trav, do you know of any good ones floating around at the moment? Mate? <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, oh, that's oh. cringeworthy to listen back to. Isn't it? We need Mark? to cut this up. Aren't we? Oh, oh, how funny is that? Trav, well, Trav actually sounded all right there. Yeah, <laughs> we've got uh, right. We've got one of them on here today. Anthony McDonald, he's, uh, and then Peter Kerr as well. So, mate, rip and chat. Awesome to have them both on. Keen to share this one with the money miners. Oh, I'll tell you what. When we go over and catch up with these guys, I reckon by next year. There will be a massive expansion in the Brooks Airways fleet, and they will be able to fly us directly <laughs> to Sydney 
and Melbourne to catch up with Peter Kerr and Anthony McDonald. I reckon we do a bit of a media road show. Oh, that'd be and, cool. And head, head over there, right on with the big Brooks tail going over. Oh, mate, just flying over the Nullarbor. Absolutely, guys. We've got to do a money of mine trip over East, <laughs> Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane. Matty, you can come up with a creative name for the for the trip, but yeah, Brooks Airways is going to send us over. Yeah, no, I'll get into bed by midnight every night. Piece <laughs> of cake. But until Brooks Airways has this rapid expansion into domestic travel, they are the new player in FIFO travel in West well, they're, Australia. They're not that new. They've been doing it for, for years. Just It's just rebranded. For the rest. prominence yeah. has just like yeah. really – The marketing on It's really, on ta- it's gro- really taken off. Taken off. <laughs> it's really taken <laughs> they're off. They're growing Mate, regarding Stewie you. Stewie Brooks, the aeronautical prodigy, like he – like you know when the owners are maintaining it themselves. Like, yeah, it. No one takes so much pride and you want pride in maintenance on aircraft. When, when your name's on the plane, mate, you got it. You take pride in he's, it. He's it – literally if something happens, it's it's on him because <laughs> of the Brooks name. So that's he, maximum accountability. He, and that's what, that's what you want. Talk about shareholder alignment. Mate, that's bloody safety that alignment. That is safety alignment. That is yeah. – tell you what, you cannot – I would not feel in safer, more competent hands – than we are with Stuart Brooks. So they've got a bunch of nine-seater jets. You need to get anywhere in the goldfields. Oh, the Land Cruiser of the sky, JD. That's it, the Land Cruiser of the sky. Get in touch with Stewie Brooks. Mate, they've got Le- Lear jets if you're, if you're rich and want to go to Bali. Yep. Mate, they've got everything. And mate, thanks for the support all year, Brooks. Just landing on shit runways because they can. Because they've got the Land Cruiser. Cheers, Brooks. Cheers, Brooks. Now, you know, I've harped on about mesh and bolts and the real underground focus of DSI. But you did you know, boys? You see that Lion Town portal that got cut? It was, that I was, did. It was all looking, bol- bolted and sprayed. It was looking pretty schmick. Some underground mines do not have the luxury of having semi competent ground when they first enter via the portal. It could be absolute pus, mm. absolute dog shit. I reckon DSI could do something for them. DSI, I've got a solution. Steel, mate, they also do bloody steel sets, like the big, like just freaking pretty much creating a, oh, it's like a cross-city tunnel sort of yeah. infrastructure to get you through that first shit bit. So like beyond mesh, beyond bolts, they've got bloody steel sets, lattice girders to actually get you through. We'll flick up some pictures of it. Mate, mm. I, till today, I didn't even know that DSI had that capability, but like I am surprised every day at what our partners keep bringing to the table. So you've been chucking in DSI orders all this time, mate, and you haven't oh, even gone gone with the steel sets. I haven't. Oh, I can't believe I didn't tick the steel set box. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So, mate, if you're bloody cutting a portal, hit up DSI. They will get you bloody the sturdiest bloody entrance safety protection. Whatever it's called. If you got, do it once, do it right. <laughs> do it once, do it right. It's going to be there forever, JD. That's, That's it. That's the first thing you look for. when you, As soon as you enter that mine, the first thing you yeah. will see is a DSI steel set or a DSI lattice girder. So, look, <laughs> take control of investors, take control of your share price and put a DSI steel set because that will be looked upon favourably. Yeah, like, the, it's as simple as that. When you're in the checkout, just, just click that one as well. Just, mate, we're going into Christmas, a lot of trucks going along highways. Get your DSI order in. Don't run out of ground support. Cheers, DSI. Love your work, DSI. Thanks to both Brooks and DSI for the support this year. Right, let's get into our chat with Anthony McDonald, Peter Kerr from the AFR. It's a ripper. Here we go. 
Right, everybody, what a special treat to finish off 2023. We've got, I'd say, talk about some GC friends in the media industry, a couple of blokes we've got a lot of bloody respect for, one bloke that got mentioned in our first ever Money of Mine podcast, yep. though I will highlight, I don't think he's mentioned us yet, so we'll get to that <laughs> later, Mr. Anthony McDonald. But uh, Peter Kerr and Anthony McDonald from the Australian Financial Review, lads, Welcome to Money of Mine. Great to have you on. It's an honour. Thanks for having yeah. us. Yeah, great to be with my favourite personalities. <laughs> oh. <laughs> there we go. Oh. Mate, it's oh. the Wild West over here. Yeah, yeah, I've I'm taken you. Yeah, don't worry, this, that hot air hasn't gone anywhere, mate. <laughs> <laughs> right, I've, always, I've, always, I've always wanted to say long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> <laughs> well, Love yeah, good to, good to see you in colour uh, instead of the black and white little thing at the at the top and uh look special mention to uh brad thompson as well he did he did get an invite but he reckons he wouldn't get a word in with you too so another <laughs> another great friend from the afr <laughs> lads we wanted to do just a bit of a bit of a wind up of 2023 and not probably step outside the realm of mining specific because you guys cover a lot broader than we do and we'd love to hear look some of the big things that you guys thought of this year and um I guess what what we can look forward to 20, 2024. So we'll start. We always start big and work small, don't we, lads? The yep. the I guess the macro themes, the geopolitical dynamics around the globe these days, east versus west. I guess what what caught your guys' attention in that in that realm this year? Well, I think everybody watched that whole drama play out, and I think we can all see how it's going to lead to probably more mines getting into development. If we're going to have the world split between these two realms, you know, it sort of is going to mean some uncompetitive marginal ones will survive for a while. Um, but, you know, as the years gone on, I think a bit of reality is cut in that, you know, just being a critical mineral isn't going to be enough. Ant wrote a really good column yesterday about nickel, you know, with, with panoramic going down. Ant will probably talk about that himself. But just making that point that, you know, the status of being a critical mineral probably isn't going to save you from those normal cycles in the industry. And, you know, I often think when I read a research note about copper, you know, for the best part of a decade, any research note about copper said, well, the next couple of years it might be a balanced market or a bit of surplus. But then after that, a a sustained, almost permanent um, surfeit of copper will exist. And that that those days just never seem to arrive. And I don't know, like... It, isn't there always going to be a cycle? There's always going to be ups and downs, aren't there? Even if we need, you know, a million tonnes extra copper a day or whatever it's going to be. So just probably that sense of reality kicking in is one of the one of the things that has really sort of dawned on me in the last few months. Yeah, so back, Macca, did you think like at the start of the year when Wailu's going so hard for Mincor and, you know, this talk about price bifurcation and nickel sulphide being this premium product, did you think you'd be writing articles at the end of the year about you know, nickel nickel sulphide operations either going into administration, halting half uh, shaft construction at Cosmos, everything else. Did you think this is where we'd be right now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why I wrote it because, you know, I mean, I don't follow the mining sector as closely as you guys, but over the past 15 years, you know, one of the names that keeps coming up in nickel is panoramic and it's, it's kind of amazing sitting here on the other side of the country. I mean, we all know this battery metals uh, thing is real. But then but then to see that one of one of the last sort of pure 
fuel play nickel groups that we have left on the ASX go bust. Um, it's it's really really quite astounding, and and it comes after that that scrap for uh, Western areas. It comes after you know there was interest in panoramic itself. Comes as IGOs unraveling. Um, yeah, it's amazing. But to to go back to your initial question, I think like Australia is definitely getting closer to China again, just from a trade. The wine tariffs, the barley, met pole. I mean, it's it's opening back up. I know. Obviously, they've been buying a billion tons of iron ore and keeping Australia afloat for years. But we are we are getting closer to China again, just politically. But at the same time, you've got you know the US with their foreign entity of concern rules. Um, you know that's that's very real as well. So I think the East and West story is like it's it's going to be one of the big stories that we'll be writing about for the next ten years or more. And on that point, I think um, one of the things that I think is interesting, we've all got very excited about the IRA and justifiably so, you know, it's not often someone does a policy worth half a trillion dollars um, and, you know, Australian miners are obviously going to be able to play in it. But it's interesting to pause and think, how valuable is IRA compliance going to be for an Australian miner? Um, You know, if you actually think about it, the benefits will be indirect at best. You know, the subsidies are going to go to the US automaker who will be incentivized to have a bit of Aussie minerals, but, you know, it, that's still going to be subject to negotiation. And if you're a pre-revenue lithium developer, you know, the sort of situation that, say, Core Lithium or maybe Liontown were over the past two years, like, there's still going to be a power imbalance there. You're still going to be a pre-revenue company. And sure, you might, you know, there might be a little bit of extra cream there, but how lucrative is it actually going to be? It's going to come down to how good negotiator you are. And you, you might have seen Peter Coleman's comments last week, um, the, the Chem chairman saying that with their Mount Catlin mine in WA, which probably is IRA compliant, they're not going to bother. They're just going to keep selling it to China where they've got an established customer that shipping routes yeah. shorter. So that's kind of interesting, right? Like the, the subsidies aren't going to be generous enough to warrant the extra effort for them to get it to the US. So, I think, did you say that yesterday, JD? Like, uh, you know, you yeah, might get it, an extra 10%, but it doesn't help when the price is halved. If, if it costs you, you know, double as much to produce, then a 10%, you know, kicker on the on the price you receive isn't going to save you. No. Peter, you, you made the comments about copper earlier, and it reminds me of a chart we sent out a week or so ago, and it's got the demand supply gap, and it's a chart from 2014, and it's got, you know... <laughs> You like, love those, Trav. Exactly <laughs> like you just said, the um, supply and demand are sort of hugging each other for the next three or four years, and then supply drops off, demand just skyrockets, and here we are 10 years later. It hasn't happened yet, but maybe it will happen in the future. There's another, on the on the theme of big issues, you guys speak with a lot of these big company CEOs, and something we were speaking about a lot when we started the podcast, it was a, a massive theme in 21, 22, was all these companies wanting to go downstream to capture the the value. I'm keen to hear from you guys whether you're still hearing as much noise. You know, we've heard, you know, stories. Chris Ellison is an example that sort of comes to mind. He's become very much more focused on just getting the rock and, you know, keeping it keeping it simple, knowing what he's good at and just getting the rock, sending it off to, to China. Do you think the theme of Australian companies trying to go downstream in any sort of way, shape or form, is sort of fading away and we're going to realise again that we're just really good at mining the stuff and sending it off? It's a fair chance. Yep, it feels that way. It feels like it's rapidly going out of fashion. 
which I guess is what, you know, people like BHP spent much of the past decade doing, right? Like they sort of think that what BHP was in 2011, there were um, alumina refineries and um, going even further back, steel mills. They've, they've consciously over a couple of decades tried to get all that stuff out of their business so they can just be this upstream producer. Um, and... Yeah, it sort of felt like this sort of that talk that you mentioned a couple of years back about downstream. I think it was also influenced by COVID and, you know, the world kind of had that moment of wanting to onshore um, domestic manufacturing again. So a lot of these rust belt assets suddenly were, were fashionable, you know, these things the government had propped up for a long time. But, yeah, like all the independent lithium miners, I mean, you would have heard their commentary. They're all going a bit softer, maybe intermediate processing, that sort of stuff. The really interesting one next year will be BHP and Nickel West. Given the challenges in Nickel at the moment, looks like it's going to be a pretty tough few months in Nickel in WA. Um, you know, a BHP still going to go ahead with the expensive works they need to do at Kalgoorlie to sort of upgrade that smelter there. Um, maybe they will, but it's, it's a harder decision than it might have been 18 months ago because nickel's not quite as fashionable. Well, I think, yeah, next year will be the decision time, won't it? Because I think it was scheduled for 2026, wasn't it? Yeah. And, that's, and that's when Nova's going to fall off for the, I guess, the clean con supply that's going up there. And then, you know, why, why Lou Mincor? That's up in the air as, as well in this environment. So they're, um, they're not going to have, yeah, they've only got the low quality um what is it low femgo stuff coming out of uh what is it mount keith and leinster that are going to feed that smelter I, th so. I think that sort of that kind of theme is a bit related to another another huge one that we saw a lot of this year which is um it's been a bit of a year of a profitless boom right like the commodity prices in some in some commodities have, have been pretty elevated but you've had this underlying um you know amount of cost inflation throughout, which is which has really eroded the margins of these companies. They've become distressed. In some cases, you've got the commodity in your face like Panoramic and hence hence your article. Um, and but but uh, you know what do you think of what do you think of any continuation of that theme in going forward and, and how do you reflect on it on it this year guys? Well it's gonna be really interesting for next year. Like you're right, I think it it's made it harder, right? Developing projects is just harder. So what I'm constantly hearing at the moment, I mean, including on your podcast, everyone's just running around saying if you've got something that's up and running already, like it's more valuable than ever. It's 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 so hard to develop something. It's hard to raise capital for it. It's hard to do it on time. It's hard to do it on cost. Um, I don't see how the cost pressures are going to go away though. You know, like we need, we apparently need all these new, new mines for the, uh, batteries boom and energy transition and everything. And it feels like it's going to be a pressure that's, we've somehow got to learn to live with. What about, Macca, you don't mind a good old billionaire, don't you? You love the love the behaviour of these, uh, <laughs> the the Chris Jean at Twiggy Faye. Don't, we don't, well, you might have to be careful what you say because they might sponsor some of your award nights or something. But <laughs> <laughs> what, do you, what do you think about the whole, uh, you know, their involvement in mining, but then going down retail between Drysabone, Akubra, RM Williams, like everything, is it... Have you, in your both your journalistic careers, have you seen this sort of thing play out with these big wigs in Australia? Uh, how long have we got? <laughs> <laughs> We're not sure uh, if it's just because the first year we've been talking about like stuff 
every day or if did or we if, start if, at a or, great time or, in history or is this year just a weird <laughs> year for billionaires uh, mate, you, you nailed the timing of this point <laughs> <laughs> yeah. no, we're, we're really dealing with some rare individuals yeah. you know they they do things differently they're mavericks you've got to respect their track record and you know australia really really needs them but if you just look at gina reinhardt and twiggy forest and say mrs forest as well they're so uniquely placed, like throughout history. Like look at um look at Hancock Prospecting's accounts, right? So it's got $19.9 billion in cash at June 30, making $5 billion of profit year, $4.6 billion in operating cash flows. Boy. Like think about that. So you got $20 billion of cash and you got $5 billion a year coming in, in operating cash flows. Like there's no no debt, no banks, no nothing to worry about. Just yeah, she's so uniquely placed through history, just to do what you want. I mean, can you think of anyone else who could have sat around a whiteboard and mapped out their options like she can? And that's literally what they do, by the sounds. And they, can you, what well, in history, who would you compare it to? We're going back to like in terms of like these big figures, what they're buying and the control they're getting is it like going back to alan bond maybe the oil barons maddie yeah yeah. 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 Yeah, bondy's like got the the banks and that to worry about so i mean and the forest is the same so you know they've got their capital base that's a 30 billion dollar stake in fortescue and then they're sort of getting two billion dollars a year or so just from fortescue and then they got in all their earnings on their other investments, assuming that assuming they are making earnings there. Mm. Um, like these guys are just uniquely placed. They're going to get bigger and bigger. Their war chests are getting bigger, and they're diversifying. And yeah, what, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm, about, I'm not sure about you guys, but I think I've I've learned a lot about you know human behavior and how it doesn't really change if you're a billionaire. <laughs> it gets one, worse. One of, one of them buys Aaron Williams, the other one buys Rossi Boots, you know. It's, There's it's, still two children, you still aren't got they? envy, you still got FOMO. Yeah. Like as we sit here, what is it, December 15, sort of end of the year wrapping it up, you know, Fortescue's been just such an incredible well, I guess the Andrew Forrest story, Fortescue's yeah. one subset of it, yeah. has just been one of the incredible things to watch this year. And of all the controversies, of all the troubles, and we could list them, but we probably don't need to because your audience is familiar with them, we get here to, de- to December 15 and we probably have to say Andrew Forrest is having the last laugh, right? Like Fortescue shares are at record highs. Mm. And, you know, part of that whole narrative about the pivot into the clean energy stuff was that it was going to be happening at a time when iron ore earnings were going lower. So how were all the financials going to work? Well, the financial is going to be a fair bit easier now that iron ore has been at, you know, 130 rather than 95, where many of us thought it might be. Um, You know, they've done the Gabon thing. And again, your audience are, you know, an informed audience about mining. And most of them can probably see that's not a productive way to export ore out of Gabon, like with that clam thing they had in the photos. But Credit to them. They met their promise. They did it. There's probably some political capital for them in Africa for getting that first shipment off before uh, Christmas, regardless of whether it was profitable or whatever. Um, I just think, like, they, after such a turbulent year, will probably be getting to the end saying, mm, actually, we're not we're not too badly placed here, you know? It's a, it's a great point. We spoke with a bunch of fundies yesterday. We put up a show and... We asked for predictions going forward and on the on the bearish side for commodities, 
more than a couple said iron ore. I think they all said it. Was it yeah, maybe, a lot yeah. of majority, of them. majority yeah. did, yeah. But I think if we go back 12 months, you know, there's a good chance people would have been saying that as well and 12 months before that as well. So I think last time I looked it was US $137. These guys are producing at, what, like a quarter of that or something? It, the, the cash flow that they're making is phenomenal. But in the face of the, the China narrative, the property market's slowing down massively. We all know how important the property market is in China. What, what's the sort of, you know, the scuttlebutt you guys are hearing about where China goes from here? Because it's just such an influential player in the, in the world of commodities. Wouldn't, wouldn't pretend to have any great insights other than the people who I speak to who do have insights seem to feel pretty Comfortable? Like, say, your sensing... secrets are safe with us, Curry. If you want to let it <laughs> okay, out, okay. So it's just us talking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, they all seem they seem pretty relaxed. I've got to say. Um, look, even the lithium guys are a bit sort of quietly confident about you know the notion that this lapidolite thing will sort of all explode and be shown up and they'll be vindicated. I mean, who that'll be fascinating to watch as well. Mm. Um, yeah. I if you're going to speak to the big miners at the moment, um, you know, China's their biggest customer. But I reckon of the first five things that you talk about, China's not one of them. So to Pete's point, I think they are feeling quite comfortable about it all. I think it kind of ties in with um, a bit of a, yeah, a bit of a thesis I'm playing with, which is that, you know, we're kind of past the peak ESG investor kind of dynamic. And I think that that was strongest late, you know, late 2021 when, every green stock was sort of mooning and um, anything, you know, with a green tag on it was just the the hottest thing. And it, it's informed a lot of the capital flows in this industry in a big way. And I'll, I almost think, you know, with the cost of capital dynamics changing a little bit, there's a much more focus on actual cash flow and that's lent itself, um, you know, towards the kind of energy stocks and the, and the likes, which, um, you know, <laughs> and you guys have talked about a lot of this stuff in, in, um, in a lot of the, the green energy markets, X commodities as well, like the, the renewables infrastructure and the like. So I wonder if you guys are, are aligned in thinking, have we seen peak ESG investor? I'm not sure about peak, but I do agree that it, 2023 has felt like the year that a real pragmatism overlay was put on ESG, perhaps the, the what might have been idealism sort of 18 months ago. You know, if you think about some of the headlines we've seen this year, the UK PM Rishi Sunak has watered down some of their climate targets, you know, like the, the end of the internal combustion car was supposed to be 2030. I think it's now 2035. And there, two, there were two or three other similar things that he did that effectively were watering things down. We've seen BP and Shell and a couple of the other oil companies um, relax their targets, whether it was, you know, to reduce oil production annually or their actual just carbon targets. I think BP halved their carbon target for 2030. Um and even in New South Wales, you know, the New South Wales government in the past couple of months, sort of coming to the realisation, actually, we're going to need those coal-fired power stations in the Hunter Valley to run a bit longer than we previously thought. And I do think that there's a little bit of an element that um, once somebody broke the line, I think there were a lot of executives who felt they had a bit of cover to now come out, you know, coming out 18 months ago and saying, oh, actually, we're going to abandon our carbon target. You would have been, you would have been, you know, thrown off the bridge. But um, these days, enough of them have done it. They're getting more confident to do it. People, even those who are maintaining their carbon target, so Rio Tinto last week, they've kept their 2030 goal, but they say we will spend less to get there and 
The interesting thing for me was they said their fleet replacement in the Pilbara was now likely to be after 2030 rather than before 2030. And, you know, over the past few years, we've laboured under this idea that BHP and Rio were probably going to have a big fleet replacement cycle sometime around 2027, 2028. And that's when you'd see this new generation of whether it's battery electric or whether it's the trolley assist, you know, which is, you know, where basically you've got whole trucks running like Melbourne trams with overhead power lines. That was all going to come before 2030, but Rio have now pushed that back to, to after 2030. So, yeah, I, I do feel like there's been that that sort of pushback this year. But whether we've seen the peak of it, I don't know. I mean, COP this week still took yet another step forward. Um, I, I think it'll probably just sort of come and go in cycles. The US election will be a big um, pivot this time next year on that, right? Like if Trump gets back in, then clearly there will probably be a few steps backwards, particularly if he decides to gut the IRA. Mm, God, <laughs> isn't that a topsy, yeah, just, just topsy-turvy? A, <laughs> yeah, I mean, at the risk of getting cancelled by you and your audience, if I can just take you out of the mining sector just for one second. Oh, oh mate, um, we are at your disposal, yeah, we're, mate. We're, we're, we're open-minded. Right? We're open-minded. <laughs> no, no, so if, you, so if you look at that, like ES&G, the big stories of this year, just in corporate Australia more generally, they're much more around the G yep. at the moment, the governance bit, right? So look mm. at the Qantas story, the PwC tax link story, what's happened to the casinos and everything. It's, it's all about the governance. So, I mean, the, the E is still very much there and it's always going to be there. I mean, look at like Santos and Barossa or Woodside Scarborough or, or whatever. But it's just it's just not as strong in investment markets at the moment as probably I'd say is the focus on G, which is uh, the governance. So, I mean, so if you speak to... Um, speak to one of the big miners about their roadshow post-results they would have had in September when they went over to Europe. And Europe is the home of all the, the uh, e-questions normally from um, investors. I mean, they'll, they'll tell you that there was much less focus out of Europe on the environmental stuff this year compared to last year and the year before. So, I mean, so the ESG is definitely there. It's, it's not going away. It's just that the focus has changed a little bit at the moment. And the New Hope coal boss, uh, Rob Bishop, in September, he also said that on his visit to Europe to meet investors, um, he happened to meet with insurers because, you know, there's been this issue that insurers won't insure fossil fuels. And he said it was the insurers over there were far more willing to engage with their company, predominantly thermal coal, than, you know, barely a year, 18 months earlier. So I think it does speak to that sort of slight pushback, that slight bit of extra pragmatism. The, the G is something that's near and dear to our hearts. And you, you mentioned a few cases yeah. there. And we spoke about um, Whitehaven was a big example throughout the year in the in the re- realm of mining where G played a big role. I'm keen to get into some of the big deal themes that we we spoke about over the over the past year. And, you know, the, the elephant in the room when you speak about deals and deal themes is minority stakes blocking deals. And you covered it in a big way with Origin, a bit out of our, our neck of the woods, but, you know, we're talking like Liontown, Azure, it was massive in, in the mining world. So I'm, I'm keen to hear firstly, given how closely you followed that that Origin story, how, how it sort of, you know, what, what the repercussions are now of somebody having a, a 15 odd percent stake and being able to just shut down a $20 billion deal is what that means for getting a deal done going forward. Yeah, it could have really big implications. So, I mean, the way that all the deals have been done sort of over the past 10 years, these schemes of arrangement, and the, the reason the bidders like them is because you need a 75% vote for 
And if you can get 75%, you get the whole company. There's no minority shareholders holding out or anything like that. So it's pretty it's binary. You either get the company or you don't. Um, but what we're seeing, though, is these pe- people get minority stakes and then voting the schemes down. And, um, and it turns out if you have 10%, 12%, 15% going into a scheme vote and you want to vote it down, you're a pretty good chance because mm. um, not everyone votes at the meetings it's, and it's really hard to get everyone to turn up on meeting day. So definitely this year that rise of the blocking stake has sort of cast a cloud over that whole scheme of arrangement style of doing takeovers. Um, so I definitely think next year we'll see um, bidders sort of rethink things a little bit. Uh, histor- and- historically, had you seen, has there been many more cases where that has been the cause of these deals getting blocked or is it just more apparent this year because there's so many we've, of them? We've never seen an origin situation, right? So you've got a board who's recommending shareholders accept a bid at, you know, 9.50, 9.30 a share or whatever and um, they're telling shareholders that this is as good as it gets, take the money and then you've got a big shareholder that says, uh-uh, not doing it and then the whole thing falls over. Like we've, we've never seen it on that scale. Um, and I mean, in terms of like, even even on a Lion Town scale, um, you know, it's it's really rare that we've had someone come in buy a blocking stake and and blow it up. It's, it's and if I can throw a question to Ant, um, like, because yeah. you know, for your audience, if you're not familiar with Ant, for the past decade he's done the AFR Street Talk column, so lived and breathed M and A. Like, Ant is the scheme of arrangement. If it's going to be out of favour, what's the alternative? Like, what what could deals? How could deals happen next year in a different way? Or do, does the government need to change the Corporations Act to make is seventy five too high a number? Like, should it be sixty? No, I think seventy five is good. I mean, if it's sixty, if you're selling the company just because sixty percent of shareholders want to sell it, selling the whole thing, for me that that feels like it's tipping things too much in bidders' favours. Um, I mean, the alternative is bidders can just go to shareholders with good old-fashioned um, on or off-market takeover bids. So the Azure, can, essentially what Azure did, they yeah, said if the scheme yeah. scheme fails, it's an off-market that was, takeover. That was a dual transaction structure, which yeah. is a nifty way to get around it, yeah. Bankers exactly. get more creative. Yeah, so bidders have just got to run the risk that maybe they end up with 50%, 55 60 65 and not being able to own the whole thing um, or and cut deals with minority shareholders. Um, so yeah, all that all that stuff is a hot hot topic, you know. In the Collins Street towers in Melbourne, the big investment banking towers here, it's sort of as the year draws to a close, that deal structure is uh, red hot. I suppose it'd be pretty. You see the Genesis Dacian thing probably a bit more often because of that, because you end up with this prolonged uh, company with. A majority shareholder with say eighty percent, they haven't got to the ninety percent compulsory. But then there's a separate deal that comes about to get that final chunk over the line to make a bit of a neater corporate structure. So that might be something we yeah. see more often. Yeah, it's all right for strategic buyers. It's it's really hard for the financial buyers though. So you you know private equity firms, your Brookfields or whatever, because they they have you know huge debt packages lined up to buy things. So because they're normally pretty leveraged bets so so they need certainty that they're going to be able to own the whole company and run things on their terms completely reset the capital structure just to make the deals work so um if for them coming in only 50 percent doesn't won't really work for them i wonder if the other super funds around australia have got a bit of an idea now that they've seen what oz super have done 
and they know they they're getting more and more capital and the you know the the way their coffers are going to fill up over the ne- the coming decades they they might feel like the real the real masters in the mm. in the and realm there's, of there's M&A. a sub story there in, in in the influence that these super funds have on our capital markets as well and if, if i were to make a prediction for 2024 it's that that'll become a bit of a story in and of itself cuz uh, do you think Oz super's going to like what have they got 200 or billion dollar war chest I think 300 or last time i looked yeah so what do you, do you yeah. think they like an organisation like that's going to become a pretty influential player in the market, as Trav said. Mate, they'll be at a trillion dollars by the end of the decade. Yeah, right. and, and they don't even have to—they don't even have to go up and really market and hit people up for money like most of the fund managers you spoke to yesterday. You know, like like they've got twenty billion dollars in inflows coming in the door, right? So um, yeah, mate, they—they've been the biggest change in Australian capital markets in my fifteen years here, for sure. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Well, mate, well, given, given you're the M&A uh, expert, uh, Anthony, we're going to keep talking deals because we love yeah. it too. <laughs> um, Get, see how we got we got Origin in there for you straight <laughs> up, mate, to, to tickle your whistle a bit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious to know just from your you know your your lens, what what, have, what more from the deal landscape have you observed this this year in 2023 that's been a bit um a bit in, intriguing from from your perspective? So we've seen some pipsqueak activists uh, pop up yeah, on the radar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100% right. Yeah, good like on yeah, mate. Bloody hell. Um, that was interesting, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, that was yeah. really interesting. Yeah. That, I mean, there was a lot that was interesting about that because it was um, an activist agenda to prevent a deal, which then turned into an activist agenda to vote down a REM structure. But it was a London hedge fund, which would always put their name to the words, but never their face. And you couldn't, yeah. you could never find out who this Marco Mara guy was. I, th- I think yeah. there's there's activists and there's activists, right? So if you think about Elliott Management, you know, the big New York um, fund who took on BHP and a lot of other high-profile um, targets, I, th- I get the vibe that those guys study a situation, pick their entry point, and it's all very uh, well mapped out, whereas with Bellrock and Whitehaven, I got the vibe this was an organisation that bought shares and perhaps hadn't done enough homework, like... I've listened to every Whitehaven quarterly call for the best part of a decade and there has like they've always been wanting to buy stuff. They've always been talking about wanting to get into Metcoal more. They've always been talking about wanting to get into Queensland more so they're not entirely reliant on one railway line. The idea that there was some change in um, corporate strategy is not right, um, but Bellrock felt there was. So I feel like they bought these securities thinking that they were just going to cream all these massive dividends through the coal boom and um, then pivoted to an activist strategy um, when they realised they'd made a bad call. That's my gut vibe. I could be wrong on that. Um, and while we're, while we're talking activists, can I, I've brought something along because I felt, you know, a bit hungover after the AFR Melbourne Bureau Christmas party last night. <laughs> How am I going to get through this? So I needed some props to get through. So you mentioned activists. I brought this along. Can you see this? These are collector's items. This is a baseball cap. Make BHP. I, I thought it was make Monono great oh, again. Well, and I just yeah, had no, PTSD. Um, well, these were, so I mentioned Elliot before. You remember like 2017-ish, yeah. Elliot took on BHP. Around that time, Tribeca, the guys at Tribeca yeah. in Sydney, Ben yeah. Cleary and, and yeah. company, they like piggybacked off it but with actually a better strategy. And they made these caps, and I think um, a few of the team even turned up to the BHP AGM in Melbourne. Right <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, these caps, like, like naughty schoolboys down the back of the room. So wow. this is 
I, I mean, I'm not saying BHP is not great. Yeah. So BHP media teams don't call me. <laughs> <laughs> ben, ben, just... ben Cleary's great. Love that bloke. Uh, <laughs> yeah, on, on Whitehaven, though, so just, just think, like if it was Australian Super that had that stake and was lining up against Whitehaven, that would have been a much harder deal for them to do. But the fact it was Bell Rock, the fact that we didn't know much about them, they didn't have much track record here, we didn't really know their motivations. It, I mean, from where I sat, I thought they never really had much wind in their sails. The Whitehaven board really wasn't worried about them, um, I got a which, I got a which is almost a shame, right, because there were some underlying issues there. There were some good issues. There's the stuff about the REM report, the pay, I mean, you guys went through it on your, your podcast. There were some real issues there. I just think it was the wrong face. I, I got a bit of a different, like, perspective on it now Now that um, time's gone. And I think I think some of the, the stuff that's popped up in the takeovers panel um, and all that sort of stuff is that Bellrock had this um, derivatives position in Whitehaven. So they were, they were leveraged long, essentially, is, is my read of it, going into the, the release of the announcement. So I, I think... And, and, and I was always kind of convinced that the risk reward in, in Whitehaven was so asymmetric. It was like whether the deal was going to be um, announced as a good deal or a bad deal, the stock was probably just going to go up because there was such this big M&A overhang, how they're going to fund it, all these questions of they're going to raise equity, so much uncertainty. So the stock was like, you know, underperforming because relative to peers because of this M&A overhang. So as soon as the deal was announced, like they absolutely, Bellrock minted it. They made shitloads of money because they were like yeah. levered long and they closed out the derivatives position shortly after and it, and it opened on announcement like 16% up. So think of all that campaign. They actually just had an incentive to make money. That's all they had. And they made heaps of money. So part mm-hmm. of the campaign might have actually just been to create maximum fear out there for the M&A overhang as possible, create, create noise, all that sort of doubt. And then just you know close out their short position, close out their long position at the end, which it looks like they did, and make shitloads of money, which they did. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean that that all sounds reasonably sound to me. And that, like they they turned up to the right company, big cash war chest, buying something that made a lot of sense. As Pete said, they've been talking about this for years. So I mean the deal was always going to be on the cards, and they just created enough sort of noise around it. Mm-hmm. Curry, what do you reckon about the Newmont Newcrest? Super Gold Co. that's come out. Uh, it's it's gone through, completed last month, twenty six billion dollar price tag. I guess where what are we going to see? Some assets coming out the arse end of it. What what's the where's the value for this? These two entities combining or recombining? You'd say is the CDI going to trade it all? Well. <laughs> I find CDI is quite confusing, actually. So you you guys with your background in corporate finance might be better than me. But um, look, I gather that the assets that come out of it might be more likely in the short term in Canada rather than out here. I mean, yeah, could be proven wrong. Um, they're sort of pitching this narrative to the local big investors that they are a replacement, not just for Newcrest, but for Oz Minerals. With, you know, so he's really talking up that copper vibe um i think um what i did find interesting as that deal was coming to a close is that some senior former newcrest people who had you know departed in recent years were sort of saying to me these guys are getting away with it very lightly like they're getting this thing damn cheap so that was that was the honest view of people who were were extremely familiar with Newcrest over the, yeah, wow. and sets over the past decade. Um, so, look, how do they go? I don't know. CDIs rarely go well down here, do they? So it's it's going to be tricky. But 
Tom Palmer has genuine sort of local connections, you know, born in Broken Hill, grew up in Cobar, um, deep family experience. So he he's going to be able to credibly talk to an Australian audience um, more than a lot of these companies have had CDIs, I think. Um, you know, his his uncle was a previous CEO of Newcrest. He, one of his other uncles was a director of Newcrest. Um, he himself, you know, worked on some of these assets previously. So, look, I think it, it, it it's going to be a test case, isn't it? It might be the first CDI that really latches on and that people actually, here actually accept. Who do you, who, which companies do you think are going to get, whether it's the beneficiary or the, the purchaser of any assets that come out the arse end? Because, you know, like Tel, Telfer springs to mind as it's not one classed as one of their tier one assets due to the mine life. Who do you think will be on the cards and having a look at all that sort of stuff? I think that British Columbia stuff that they've put together, you know, Newcrest had Red Chris and Newmont had other stuff in British Columbia. That's absolutely core to Newmont's future. They love that. They reckon that province is the next big thing. So that will be staying. Um, but, yeah, some of those older assets in and around Ontario um, wouldn't surprise me if they go. We wrote a story earlier this year about how one of those mines is very old and quite marginal, and they actually built it. They had to bulldoze the Shania Twain Visitor Centre. Are you familiar with this oh, story? Oh, first album I ever got. Yeah. <laughs> Love Shania yeah. Twain when I was 13, 14. <laughs> She's from Timmins, Ontario, and uh, the so the local town built a visitor centre like with almost like a presidential library for Shania Twain. And they filled it with all their memorabilia, but it didn't really work as a tourist attraction. So they bulldozed it. And now, now you know, oh, new even, the, even though it's bulldozed, she's still the one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But to your, to your question, I think um, a little almost like AFL Trade Week, right? Like there's certain clubs that just seem to trade well, like Fremantle and Melbourne have always just seemed to be able to do deals with each other. Um, seems like evolution seems to be, for whatever reason, pretty good at doing deals with Newmont. So it won't surprise me if eventually Evolution picked up a bit more Ontario stuff to go with Red Lake and the stuff they're trying to trying to make work over there. Bit more, bit more leverage yeah. wouldn't hurt New uh, Evolution, eh? <laughs> it, it was a it was a sad deal for the ASX though, Newcrest mm. Newmont. I mean, you know, this was our big gold miner. You know, had lots of big global money, passive funds and everything on the register. I mean, the fact that there's a secondary listing here, I know, but I mean, all that big passive money, you'd go to, you want to go to the big liquid listing, right? That's offshore, not here in Australia. So, I mean, that deal had been on the cards for ages. It was all about the stars aligning. Newcrest had some problems. Newmont pounced. I mean, you know, it used to own Newcrest. It's started it, right? So, um, but I think it is sad for the ASX. My observation is that, um, I, I felt just in the circles I'm moving that there was more sort of emotion from people or sentimentality and nostalgia about Oz Minerals getting taken up because Oz Minerals is a company that people leave and just seem to love the place. Um, and, you know, people still talk about WMC with this sense of pride, like oh, I'm ex-WMC mm-hmm. and they, they loved it. Yeah. Newcrest, I, I don't sense ever really developed that positive culture and even like the shareholders when the deal came out like it wasn't a knockout bid right it was almost like most of the shareholders were sort of happy to be rid of it rightly or wrongly so um, I, t- I think and what you say is true and you and has talked a lot in his columns this year about the idea of the shrinking asx 
and Newcrest sort of part of that. So for the ASX, it probably is a bit of a blow. But, yeah, it, it doesn't strike me that 15 years from now people will be having Newcrest mining reunion parties the way WMC people <laughs> seem to still do. Well, about – I guess about Oz, – you mentioned Oz Minerals. Where do you think this puts uh, BHP now, now that they're actually claiming they mine uranium because the uranium price <laughs> has gone up so much? And then because the bit – the big thing with Oz Minerals was the fact that they could now mine the higher uranium radioactive areas of the Oz Minerals, blend it all with this Olympic Dam uh, smelter and, I guess, creating, you know, something that Oz Minerals couldn't because they had to be selective in what they mined. Does this pose, if you know, if this copper thing happens and uranium keeps going, I, I assume that hub's going to be pretty essential to... Uh, BHP, they're going to make a bit of dosh out of it, which they haven't so far out of Olympic Dam from what I know. Yeah, I think, uh, like, aside from no doubt they hope and have a strategy for getting synergies there, but there's no doubt that I think BHP people would also like the fact that this deal sort of scrambles the egg in the South Australian copper and it will be harder for us in future to judge Olympic Dam the way we've been able to over the past few years. We've been able to see that, you know, return on capital employed over a decade is, you know, zero or or less than zero. So um, I do know Exos Minerals people who are taking bets with one another as to uh, what date BHP will report an impairment on Oz Minerals because they feel <laughs> like they feel like they got a pretty good deal. But um but I think and, you know, there is that question mark for BHP, I think. You know, you've sat next door to this thing for a decade. Not a huge amount changed to Oz Minerals in that decade. For a lot of that decade, the shares were 5 to $10. You bought them at $29. Um, so uh, that is going to be a question mark for BHP for a while. But BHP can afford it. It concentrates. It's probably the lowest risk acquisition they could have possibly done in the world. And, um, yeah, I don't... Uh, even though they possibly played, uh, paid quite a high price, I doubt they'll regret it. I don't think in 25 years they'll be sitting here lamenting the Oz Minerals deal. No. If, the, if this thing comes off, they will own South Australia. Mm. Like, seriously, it'll be huge. And one lovely little aspect of it, um, which will be fun to watch in the new year, is that in buying Oz, BHP inherited this option over the ASX-listed company Havilar Resources. Oh, yeah, yeah, so yeah. I know about that, yeah. So Havilar, I've got this tiny, well, yeah. I shouldn't say tiny. Yeah. Havilar had an early stage copper prospect, yeah. you know, 50Ks west of Broken Hill. So as a journal, I'm just barracking for that narrative about, oh, BHP is coming back to Broken Hill. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, they're going to, I think the the decision needs to be made by March one way or the other. Okay. Um, uh, so it's going to be an easy thing for BHP to say, oh, it's too small for us and we're moving on, no thanks. But yeah. fingers crossed, eh? imagine that, back uh, to broken. There's a story, right, I can imagine the title already, Pete. <laughs> there it is. Oh, I love it. So we should, we should... You, hold on, just while we're on M&A, do you want some cheap views on Woodside Santos? Or, I was just uh, about to ask you, Macca, you read my mind, mate. Jeez, look at AFR money mind just intertwined. <laughs> well, mate, it is, it's an $80 billion deal. Um for me, this one this one feels like there's a lot to play out, and it's like something something's going to happen, but it may not be what we think. So you've got you've got two very different sets of shareholder groups, and for these new premium, low premium mergers to work, you need both sets of shareholders to see the attraction. Right now, Santos has got these 
institutional investors that think it's really undervalued and they want the company to create its own value by doing stuff. Does that mean selling to Woodside and taking Woodside's maybe fairly valued script? Probably, probably not. Um, so yeah, I reckon I reckon they'll be pushing for some other sorts of uh, potential value creation things. Which uh, do you think Beach? Which means Beach deals. is part of a, a you know like a, a three like you know there's a bit of a tie up with Beach and Santos assets or there's a um, something along those lines, Anthony. Maybe. Um, I reckon, um, I reckon in the near term, so Santos has obviously got loads of bankers working on this, right? I think they've got three or four sets of bankers. Um, the bids are going to be coming in for different parts of Santos. I reckon they'll sort of, they'll think about think about those. They'll think about the whole separating to the LNG company and the domestic gas business. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know which way it's going to go. I just, I just feel that in Woodside and Santos shareholder groups, you got two very different groups, different shareholders on both sides. For example, like if you're Australian super, you, you probably only really own one of the two. You own Santos because you think it's really undervalued or you own Woodside because you like the, the bigger is better sort of thematic. Um, and I think they're more in the Woodside camp for what it's worth. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Watch this space. Well, I think it, it plays into this theme that we've seen in the past couple of years in fossil fuels, right, which is the idea that um, consolidation has to happen because if you are going to play in that realm, you might find it difficult to get finance. Therefore, you need scale, cash flow to build projects, all, all that sort of thing, right? So that's fine. And that theory has been playing out. All the oil majors have done more deals this year, BHP, Woodside, Woodside, Santos. But um, eventually that trend is going to run into an antitrust brick wall right? Like some of these companies are going to get so big that the Japanese or the Koreans or whoever are going to say, sorry, that merger will have too much of the, you know, 6,000 kcal coal market. Um, so no, it can't go ahead. And we've got Glencore wanting to put its coal with tech, put it out on New York Stock Exchange. You know, that's going to be a big thing. Um, so I think if you're a coal company out there or an oil and gas company out there and you you know you reckon you would like to be you know absorbed by gravitational pull into one of these big behemoths that are getting created you want to go sooner rather than later because yeah you you might miss your window when antitrust starts breaking down and saying these things are just too big well, i reckon we go a bit of predictions for 2024 to finish it off lads mac has got five minutes left Let's do it. Later, later away, I've got a curly one at the end. All right, well, let's start, you know, right right at the big end. Macro predictions, interest rates, where uh, – in Australia first, the RBA, where, where are we going to sit in 12 months' time? I think we sit where we are now. Um, not, too much, not too much lower, maybe one rise higher. Pete? Yeah, I think one rise, one rise higher. So you no, guys, we, you guys we're, going... we're not going. It's not like he's going to get held to it if it's wrong. So it's all good. We won't write about it. <laughs> you're going. You're going firmly against what the the traders are pricing in at the at the moment. A lot of people anticipating cuts, but they have been for a while now. So that's that's interesting. Getting into well, tell me tell me this. Like, what's the what's the cost of a a beer in Perth at the moment? Oh God, thirteen bucks a pint <laughs> down the road. A pint. 
Yeah. Well, A, A that's because you don't have pokies, but but B, like it's a lot, right? And people are still yeah. paying for them. There's there's still money out there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So trust me, I'd rather pay thirteen bucks a beer than slapping fifties in. Where's the gold every night? So it's better, <laughs> it's better for me. <laughs> All right. So next one might um might be a bit more focused at you, Pete, looking in at the the mining space. But we've seen a, a lot of the attention in the mining space focused on producers. Do you anticipate the explorers or developers getting, you know, greater access to capital, greater attention over the coming 12 months? No, no, I don't think it's going to get easier. I think if anything, it'll probably still be okay, but probably get incrementally harder. With that, The data has suggested that over the past three to four quarters that it's not quite as easy to raise capital as it was, um, which probably points to consolidation, I guess. I gather from, you know, the exploration sector is as vulnerable to inflation as any other, like the cost of getting a drill rig is probably higher than it was a couple of years ago. Um, stand to be corrected if I'm wrong on that. But, um, yeah, no, I don't think that's going to get easier. But fortunately for them, most of them have still pretty good cash levels. So I think they've, you know, they've got a bit to go. They can survive for a bit longer. I don't think it's going to be necessarily tough times mm-hmm. in there. Anthony, what about the deals? Got any predictions? Oh, juicy. Wait, in terms of targets? You oh, mean? Targets, or, any, uh, everything. Well, I mean, I think we should look at our favourite dealmakers like your Genesis's and develop globals and that to stay pretty active. Oh, the ones I mean, that have good those, relationships with AFR. The ones that have good relationships with financial markets. <laughs> <laughs> know how to get stuff done. Uh, what about user, user in tune with the, all the pollies? Uh, mate, but on both federal and state level, do you think Labor are going to be forced into going a bit more towards pro-nuclear, pro-uranium mining with the pressure being and all the stuff that's out there at the moment coming from the Liberal side? I don't think federally they will. I think uh, Chris Bowen has taken a particularly strong stance on it um, and it would just be too hard for him to politically to backpedal this term. It's pretty interesting though, right, like the resources minister, Madeline King, her electorate is in Brand, you know, down around Rockingham and stuff there, south of Perth. Her electorate is going to be home to the nuclear submarines. So, you know, if you're going to have an SMR, that could be one one of the spots to do it theoretically. But no, I don't think so. I reckon on the politicians, the thing to watch will be, you know, the IRA has hogged the headlines, um, but I think the Defence Production Act in the US, we will hear a lot more about that. And we might, in a decade's time, look back and think that the reforms to the Defence Production Act, where Australia got considered, is about to be made, you know, part of the US effectively for procurement for the US military, might actually be more meaningful for the Australian mining industry than the IRA, because the IRA has sunset clauses, right? Like if all goes to plan, the IRA will gradually phase out, whereas Defence Production Act could be permanent. Um, so if you're a, you know, a Northern Minerals or a, a rare earth producer, you know, you could be selling into the, the US Navy forever, conceivably under that. Beautiful. Macca, 8.30 on the dot, mate. Have you- I've got, I got, <laughs> got one more I want to get into here, Macca. Um, we, we've spoken with a lot of fundies over, over the past year, and a lot of them are playing into this mean reversion theme where the small and the mid caps are going to get more capital. We've been seeing a few funds specifically targeting, targeting this opening up. Do you, you know, do you put any stock in the idea that these small and mid caps that have underperformed over the past three to five years 
are going to have their day in the sunshine over the coming period and sort of relatively versus the large caps perform better? Well, their day in the sunshine is overdue. But I heard all this at the start of the year as well, and we're 12 months on, and these guys are hurting hard mm. still. So, I mean, I feel for them. It, it, it will change, but, you know, mid-caps, just in terms of, like, what's hot and that, like all the, all the fund managers are raising mid-cap funds at the moment. I reckon I know four, probably four mid-cap funds that are in the works. So, I mean, yeah, and, and it's all based on this large caps have outperformed, so invest with us, we'll make your money in mid and small caps. It, it has to revert at some stage, but, mate, good luck picking it because – Picking exactly when, because um, it's been painful to date. Yeah, and on a on a similar theme, like I think it's fascinating to watch those mid caps who are a pure play to a particular industry. So, um, you know, Gerevoir in Cobalt, Sarah in Graphite, and even Illumina Limited. Um, those with the pure exposure. All of those three that I mentioned are right in the doldrums. Yeah. Um, and over historically, we've seen that it, it takes you know a flooded dam or a burst pipe or or a, some sort of unexpected black swan event and those pure plays just have this exponential boom um so clearly we're not giving anyone financial advice here but i find it intriguing that those guys are in the doldrums and will i wonder will we see some fund managers take really brave positions in the next little while based on the idea that they might be buying somewhere near the bottom Awesome. That's a pretty uh, contrarian one. Lads, thanks so much. We um and thank look, we've got such high respect for you for the articles you've write and we really, really appreciate coming coming on the show and we want to miss you wish you a Merry Christmas from the Money of Mind team. Great to have you. Thanks on. for providing us with great content all year. Appreciate yeah. it, guys. Thanks for coming on. No worries. Merry, Merry Christmas and thanks for keeping sort of uh, metals and mining at the front of my head as well. What am I? Hey, lads, feel free. I'll give you my number after this. Feel free to ring me when I make any, all the mistakes and just correctly inform. So I'm all ears. So. All good. Cheers, guys. And can I just do we have time for me to put a pitch in for Brad Thompson, the AFRs? I've got to run, boys. All sorry. right. Cheers, Macca. Cheers, Macca. Merry Thanks, Christmas, yeah. mate. Some of your some of your audience might uh, you know read some of Brad Thompson's articles, or they might even get interviewed by Brad Thompson. Anybody who gets interviewed by Brad Thompson, I want you to ask for a jar of honey because a little known fact about Brad Thompson is he is WA's number one amateur apiarist. Is so that you, right? What a fun you, fact. He he has hives and he knows how to use them. Wow! There you oh, go, mate, Brad. If you're listening. We're all up for an invite for a live potty at your honey farm as long as you <laughs> supply the beers. Ah, that's awesome. Mate, every, you just never know what – like, some people are like a box of chocolates, aren't they? <laughs> Beauty. Thanks uh, for making thanks, the time, bro. Pete. Curry, it's been awesome. thanks, Luke, for that, mate. Um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll no doubt chat to you again next year and Merry Christmas, mate. Who'd well Curry. done, fellas. Cheers, mate. Congrats on the show. Bye. Appreciate Bye. it. Thanks. Thanks, <laughs> mate. Right, that was bloody – Awesome! What yeah. absolute two absolute gentlemen. Uh, I love talking about all the uh, all the big themes out there. You know, from from China to the foreign mm. entity of concern stuff to investment downstream, all the stuff that these guys are pretty cottoned onto. The deals, everything it was awesome to 
get them to come on money of mine. And I was, I was just so I'm so impressed how broad their knowledge base is because they're obviously very well connected, uh, but they have some great insight to where obviously really pigeonholed in mining. But they've just got such. I just believe they've got such a great view of such a broader range of a lot of industries. So yeah, uh, absolutely, absolutely flattered they came on. So it was a, that's a pretty. I reckon after bloody seven eight months, boys, to get yeah. them boys on after um, yeah. referring to them in the first one and really looking up to the articles they do to get them on. That's bloody one of the greatest experiences of the year. I think. Yeah, it's pretty but cool. When the bloody yeah, I mean we we consume their content all the time and to to hear that you know they consume ours is pretty awesome yeah good stuff right oh thanks so merry christmas everyone final episode of the year we're scheduled to come back 15th of jan mm-hmm. we might get bored and maybe do a cameo before that just come <laughs> in do it do a quick one in the first week of jan or something can't promise but yeah i reckon we might maddie should we say thanks to the money miners oh the mate we talk about the partners and obviously they've given us cash to pay rent and stuff, but that is all on the back of the support we've got. Obviously, obviously, I cop a bit of abuse on YouTube for bloody <laughs> talking shit or whatever. You can don't care. They can all get fucked. But uh, everyone else, uh, <laughs> absolutely love is. We've got, we've got so many people that have just like been such advocates for what we've done and whether it's just, you know, sharing episodes, positive comments, or just talking to people about it and spreading the word. And we wouldn't have – take away our audience, we are fucked. It's like, un- that is simple as that. Like, 100%. It's unbelievable that people listen to us dribble shit on a daily basis. <laughs> it was awesome to meet so many of them at the uh, – companies pay me to do it as well. <laughs> it was awesome to meet so many of the money miners last Thursday at our, at our live event. So it would be yeah. – Awesome in the in the new year to keep on meeting the people that listen and yeah, much appreciate people that tune in over the last eight months of this. Do you reckon, do you reckon the amount of people we've met and the contacts is a it's a I think it's a linear relationship with how many bloody episodes we did. <laughs> I think if it was one episode a week, yeah, it wouldn't have done what it's done. The fact that we're committed to one episode a day, which looking back on it is fucking mad. It's done like 180 odd <laughs> But like, that wild. was just so many extra stories, so many extra people we met, so many extra people we listened to that listened to it. And the, um, yeah, it's, yeah, it, it was well worth it. Put t- it that I'll way. I'll tell you what, Maddie, I've learned more in the last eight months than I did oh, in three years Jesus. of banking. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I can, like, you imagine how much I've learned about finance, but I would imagine even you two coming from a finance background, that's just exponentially <laughs> taken your knowledge to another level. It's about mining now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not quite, but, but. Just, just focus on the finance. I'll sort, <laughs> I'll sort the mining shit out. But you've got to teach me finance too because yeah. I, yeah. I, I just want to have a fund and yeah. stuff one day. Just yeah. a bloody – I just want to go to AGMs. I just want to be on the blower to the brokers uh-huh. and the fundies just talking what deals are hot and, like, that is my future. It's awesome to hear how um, – <laughs> how a lot of the audience have shared that learning experience with us and they, they tune yeah. in and they, they talk about, you know, listening and learning um, alongside us. And we, we hope that we can um, continue that journey together and with the money miners, um, you know, bloody for a long time. So yeah, we, we, we love it. We're we not going it. anywhere. We love the audience. Hugely appreciative for the, um, for the people that tune in it, and, and going to miss you for the next four weeks. And I think one of the thing we've learned after talking to a lot of the, the money miners is just – the influence of the show on how they think about investing rather than just having a punt 
like or haven't, oh, this looks all right, or this is getting talked about, or I think whether we we didn't think we were doing it, but we probably have, like just training them to make better, more informed investment decisions. And it's definitely made me make more informed. I've lost heaps less money this year <laughs> compared, to, compared to what I used to. <laughs> My, I've had heaps of stocks that have like gone up and I've sold at a profit. Never had that. Nice change, hey. <laughs> it's uh, unbelievable. So I uh, think the, the last people we'll say thanks to is the, uh, the sponsors who have, you know, they've backed us throughout the year, which has been awesome. The, yep. the first couple, Anytime and Terra. Thanks heaps to those guys. And then... Who was next out of the ones we've got on the list? Cadrill, come J- on. Yeah. JP Search. JP Search throughout the year were awesome. And, and then Smack as well we had. Um, yep, and then since then we've had Investor Hub, DSI, as we mentioned at the top of the show, McMahon Mining Title Services, Future Proof Consulting, KCA Site Services, Brooks Airways also yep. at the top of the show, and Cadrill. And obviously Q at the Lenzo Punch Bar. <laughs> we can't forget about him. On your queue. <laughs> on your queue. Righto, Money Mines. Merry Hello, Christmas. Lads. Uh, and we will see you in 2024. Sure. The information contained in this episode of Money of Mine is of general nature only and does not take into account the objectives, financial situation or needs of any particular person. Before making any investment decision, you should consult with your financial advisor and consider how appropriate the advice is to your objectives, financial situation and needs.